the things I really care about and want to embody more are like one, a sensitivity to beauty, um, two, precise and rigorous thought, and three, an increased ability to kind of accurately take things from my internal world and express them internally. I hope that through continuously writing, I can be better and better at like turning what I'm feeling inside into something that's like legible to other people. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue and excuse for me to explore my curiosity through Combo's leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Ava. Ava is the writer of the Book Bear Express Substack, where she discusses human interaction and relationships through the lens of her own life. We talk about writing, reading, how a massive audience can change your writing, vulnerability, finding your thing to commit to, and how AI will impact dating relationships. Please enjoy. I always like to start by having the guest give an overview of their background or uh, who is Ava for context. So I am Ava. I'm 26. I write a substack called Book Bear Express. Um, comes from my Twitter bio. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, went to college in Philadelphia, and then lived in San Francisco for five years after that. And at the time I was working in tech, but during 2020, I'd always like to write. Uh, and I started trying to write a novel and at the same time started a Substack just so I had kind of like an avenue for more long form thoughts. In the beginning, it was very like random, whatever musings happened to be on my mind week to week. Probably still is, honestly, but um, that ended up doing better than I expected. And now I still write the Substack and I currently live in New York. Awesome. I did not know that you were attempting to write a novel. So I, let's start there, actually. No, what, yeah. what was you're still working on it. What is yeah, the novel yeah. and, and where are you at? Um, nearing completion, I think. I'm on my third draft. So, you know, it's definitely a, I started with a, I'll definitely finish in a year. You know, kind of mindset. I'm coming on three years, which I guess is kind of um, still within reason, but it's taken a lot longer than I expected. But I sort of just wanted to write about San Francisco and the period of time I lived there, which I think of as kind of from 2016 to 2020. Um, I mean, I think it's obviously, you live in LA, right? Right. Uh, you seem very familiar with, I guess, like technology and that subculture, but I think it's very interesting. And outside of Anna Wiener's book, Uncanny Valley, I had not seen that much writing kind of about the culture from a more like novelistic or fictionalized perspective as opposed to like, you know, mm. tech journalism. So it was very interesting. Looking forward to, I'll, I'll definitely be pre-ordering that once it's out. And <laughs> to give yourself a little bit more grace, you've also been doing a Substack like every other day uh, while you're attempting to do that and while you were holding down a, a nine to five. So um, it's okay that it's taken a little bit longer than you expected. Um, I imagine when you started your Substack, your Substack it was mostly just an out. I'm, I'm project, projecting here a bit, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine it was just an outlet for your thoughts. Um, you maybe didn't expect at the time that you'd have, I think you have on the order of like tens of thousands of, of viewers um, per each essay. What has that experience been like only over the course of three-ish years to go from zero to thousands of paid subscribers? Yeah, um, I would say that it's definitely a surprise. I really started, like you said, kind of as a pure outlet. Like I was just like, I will write this. And I did not expect that many people to read it. I was like, okay, maybe 50 people will read it and that would be awesome. Um, but it's been really encouraging. I feel like it's a very rare privilege to be able to write about your own thoughts and feelings, especially without kind of catering to a particular theme. I remember when I first started it and I first started getting like a little bit of traction, I was very worried that I didn't have a concrete theme and that it wouldn't continue to do well if I didn't narrow it down. And now when people ask me about it, I just say it's about my like personal feelings, it's personal essays about my life and my emotions. And so I definitely think that's a really 
amazing thing to be able to write about just kind of pure self-expression without a lot of focus on the audience. Um, so from that perspective, I feel very lucky. I grew up kind of in the age of like live journal, WordPress, blogspot. And so I spent kind of my adolescence reading a lot of blogs by people who wrote about like beauty, their love lives, like all sorts of topics. And that was always kind of the mode that I was interested in writing in just kind of, you know, disjointed thoughts. And I've always felt like for me, like I really like following along with other people's lives, especially via their writing. Like there's something about getting a slice into someone's internal life that's so amazing. And I'm really glad that people feel the same way about like my own thoughts. Yeah, I think for for people who the kind of traditional or conventional wisdom when you're starting some kind of uh, creative endeavor or or startup is to niche down. And in your case, you just said, I'm going to write about whatever comes to me. I'm going to write about my life. And it's proof that uh, you can always find your thousand or in your case, tens of thousands of true fans um, just by putting out what, what resonates with you. So uh, I, I'm curious if there's anything that has, there's, uh, it's it's one thing to be writing, you know, kind of into the ether, writing for 50 close friends. It's another to be writing for thousands of people. Has your writing evolved at all over the last few years? And have you, whether consciously or subconsciously, uh, taken into account that there are more people reading what you're <laughs> writing? I had this funny interaction with an acquaintance, um, probably a year or two ago, we hadn't seen each other in a while. We were at a party and he was like, oh, I really like your Substack. Like it, it's gotten a lot better from when you started, um, which is kind of very funny, right? Like it's kind of like an insult and a compliment at the same time. I was right. like, I didn't think my writing changed that much, but um, I am a big believer in practice and I, I don't think I'm the best judge of my own writing, honestly. I think, you know, maybe other authors or writers feel differently, but I I think it's sort of hard for me to evaluate, like, the quality of my writing three years ago versus now. Like, that's just not something that, that's not a way that I think about my writing. I kind of think of it as, like, in the moment, it's produced. And I hope that with every month, year, whatever, it gets better. But I'm not someone who goes back and revisits, revisits a ton. But I definitely am more conscious of wanting people to have a good experience being subscribed to my Substack, And mm -hmm. part of that is like the fact that, you know, I make a living from doing this. And so there's this element of like, if you're asking people to pay like a few dollars per month to for your writing, like just for your thoughts, like you don't want them to be having a terrible experience. So I definitely feel some amount of pressure from that um but at the same time like I really have this philosophy of for something like a personal blog which is what I sort of think of my Substack as it can be really counterproductive to overthink it and so that's why I kind of have this way of you know I put it out there week to week obviously I have one or two people read it over just to make sure I don't know I'm not accidentally saying something ter terribly offensive but I try not to scrutinize when putting out too much because I just think this particular mode of writing is not conducive to that. And, you know, as I kind of start thinking about or as I have been thinking about writing fiction or maybe in the future, like writing more formal essays, I think the way I conceptualize that writing is very different where, you know, you're kind of trying to make this like very polished, finished product that hopefully I can look back on um, in six years and be like, this sort of stands up to a test of time. But for my Substack, I really try to think of it as like, this is my blog. It's like very personal and it's not meant to be something that's like very polished or perfected. It's tricky because the thing that attracted people in the first place uh, is that you were just writing for the sake of writing. You were being honest. It wasn't to cater to an audience. And yet, it's very human and natural to think as things progress and evolve, you might have to change your style a little bit to cater to them. So that is a, it's a tricky balance. Um, you mentioned that you are making a living writing and yet you do still have a, a quote unquote nine to five. 
why haven't you made the leap yet to exclusively writing? Um, and do you have any plans to do so? Yeah, actually, well, for a year I was only writing. So I took this job maybe, I want to say like nine months ago. And so for a year before that, I was okay. only, I was only, uh, yeah, writing basically. I think for me, it's complex because I used to work in tech and I continue to find like technology and writing about technology, like very interesting. And so part of it was just, I am still trying to work out like how I want to balance like my interest in technology versus my interest in writing. And like, I don't necessarily have a great sense of the final form of that. Like it's very much on my mind. Like maybe all I want to do is like write occasionally about tech. And that's the way in which, I mean, there's lots of people who like, you know, they write like a newsletter uh, that's about tech or, you know, read by people in tech. And that's a way that they kind of express that interest. Then there are people who like, you know, work in like product roles or like at startups. Like there's obviously a lot of different instantiations of that. But um, it's something that I personally am still trying to explore. I will say that um, there is something nerve wracking about making a living completely off sort of like your identity, your brand. Um, You know, I guess I would think of this sort of as almost like freelance writing, like, you know, you are being self-employed and there is something about that kind of like, one, like, am I, like, is the income I'm making comfortable for me? Um, and I I don't have, like, seven or 8,000 paid subscribers yet. It's, I'm kind of cagey about it, like many writers are, but it's, like, in the low thousands, which, you know, I can support myself off of, but there's always this kind of fear of, like, will that continue? Like, what if people don't want to, you know, read me anymore? Like, what if I don't feel like writing? Um Healthcare is obviously more expensive when you're uh, not working it for a company. And there's kind of all these factors of like, you have to be comfortable with the uncertainty. And I think for the most part, like I am, I do think about writing full time, but like also I'm interested in like these other things and like, you know, having a nine to five also provides this kind of stability where I can work and then I can write. And if I were to stop writing, it would actually be okay, you know? And so it's, I guess, not so much that I think I would ever stop writing uh, because I wouldn't. But I think this idea of like writing multiple times a week for subscribers is something that I still feel is relatively new to me as like a mode of living. And I'm still trying to be like, oh, like, how do I feel about this? I'm nowhere near being able to make a living off of something like podcasting or writing. But I imagine if I was ever to get to that point, uh, I would I would experience that same conflict for a number of reasons, and, and one of the most uh, the one at the kind of forefront of my mind is the incentives and expectations really change. It's like, uh, yes, this started as a personal creative endeavor, but now I've kind of I've got to support my lifestyle with it too. So, do I per our earlier conversation, do I start to to make trade offs uh, and cater to people? to deliver this whereas you're in a position where not only do you get to scratch your your tech itch and this kind of personal writing itch um but you kind of have more resiliency and more freedom in terms of your ability to write so uh i i totally understand where you're coming from um connected to this idea the idea i was just alluding to about um you're writing originally coming from a place of, you know, just personal interest and, and wanting to be authentic and honest online and potentially having to trade off on that uh, if you went into it full time. You have, at least in a couple of essays, you mentioned that being able to write uh, authentically and honestly and be vulnerable is actually uh, difficult for you. And yet, from my perspective, that's like, the, the most amazing thing about your writing that seems to be the thing that cuts through most um so i'm curious if that was a fair characterization that you do struggle with that like honesty and authenticity and vulnerability and if so how have you cultivated that how have you tried to change that yeah i think i don't know in what specific context we're talking about authenticity i feel like everything i write is 
definitely honest, like in terms of like how, you know, how I'm describing my feelings and like factually true. I feel like there are definitely things I choose not to write about. Like one thing I'm thinking I've been thinking about is just, you know, a lot of writers I really like reading write to some extent about their relationships. I do not really write about my romantic relationship, nor do I really write in with any detail about like my friendships. Um, and this is a choice I made because I sort of didn't like the possibility of like, you know, someone being like, oh, like Ava wrote about her like ex-boyfriend and he's this person. And then like, she's friends with this, you know what I mean? Like there's kind of this like, you, it opens you up to this form of scrutiny that I know that, or I assume that would kind of make me uncomfortable. And then I sometimes I'm like, oh, like maybe my writing would be more interesting if I were more comfortable sharing those details. But um, I also feel that in a way, the emotional experience is more important, if that makes sense, where I feel like I can write openly about kind of what I'm going through or what I'm feeling and thinking about without necessarily like concretizing the details of those things. And so that's been uh, the approach that I've kind of pursued so far. And it also just, you know, it solves a lot of problems because I think if you're someone who very openly writes about people in your life, you need to worry about things like do they consent to that or how do they feel about it and like what am I sharing what am I not and generally because I anonymize people uh, there's not really this fear of like I might be sharing something that someone doesn't want me to share and that's like part of how you know I write and how I make art um, so I guess the answer is like I try to be honest without necessarily being super explicit about all the details of my life it's possible this could change in the future. No immediate plans. Understandable. Yeah. You don't want this to turn into a, a reality TV like uh, journal of your life. I think m- maybe then I, I misread in one of your essays. I specifically remember you saying you struggle with vulnerability, but maybe I uh, projected that or applied that to your writing, but maybe it's more kind of behind closed doors in personal life. Is that is that a fair characterization or am I completely misreading? Yeah, um, I do struggle with vulnerability in the sense of like, I think it's difficult for, well, maybe it's not difficult for some people. It seems difficult for a lot of people, as I imagine it, to be completely exposed in any area of their life. And I feel like I'm definitely, and I've written about this a lot, like someone who's like, in a lot of ways, like fairly type A you know, prefer to be kind of prepared for things like polished. And I think both in writing and sometimes in like, you know, my interpersonal relationships, I feel the sense of like, oh, like I wish I could just be like really, really, really raw, you know, just like show up, no preparation, like say the unpleasant thing. Um, That's something that I think about, like, would that be more, would that be better for art or for life? But I don't know if I've really come to a conclusion on that um i do think that people who know me in real life think that my substack represents like maybe more of a slice of my personality than my entire personality and so maybe there are these ways in which like i don't fully show up completely as myself on the page um i feel like obviously it's hard to completely convey who you are in all dimensions just through you know, a blog that's focused mostly on a certain type of feeling and a certain type of thought. So I don't know how much of it is like the ways in which I fail to show up is adequately vulnerable or kind of like, at least in the way that I approach this subject, there are certain limitations for the medium. And there's only, you're working with a few hundred words at a time. So uh, if you were to cover every aspect of your life from every angle, uh, this would quickly, each essay would turn into its own novel. Um, in my experience, honesty is one of the, the key tenets of really good writing and, and communication in general. The other two that have always stuck out to me are clarity. Um, so you, you could think about it as concision, but also simplicity. And then the last is the ability to like elicit emotion or a response. So honesty, clarity, eliciting emotion in your experience, uh, does that kind of track with you that that's almost like the holy triumvirate of writing or are there other key elements that your favorite writers have and that you try to bring into your own writing? Yeah, it's 
I feel like it's so hard for me to talk about writing as a whole because I feel like there are many different styles I like. Um, I guess I could talk a little bit about the substacks I really like. Um, and so substacks that I think about um, that have had kind of an influence on how I style my substack and present it are uh, Maybe Baby, which is very popular, um, Morning Person, and... Uh, I'm going to kick myself when I remember what the other one is. There are, um, I really like, I think it's called Between a Card and a Hard Place. Um, that It's kind of about, about tarot, and I, I really like that one as well. Um, I, I subscribe to like 25 substacks that I'm all very serious about. Uh, but like those are also Brief Bacon by Helena Fitzgerald. So they're all substacks written by women and they actually vary quite a bit in kind of the style. Like, for example, Morning Person is sort of based around recommendations and kind of like, you know, she might share like how she stays organized or she might talk about kind of the furniture that she's bought for her new apartment post a breakup. Um, And it's a little bit more kind of centered around details of her life, maybe more lifestyle content um then maybe baby is sort of more about like thematic issues um i think originally the the description it's changed since was like a place to talk about like hard to express feelings and thoughts and i feel like she does a great job kind of writing about these more like kind of topics like you know i think she wrote about um everything everywhere all at once and like her feelings about like this idea like spoon feeding um a particular moral um, she's talked about like beauty culture and so kind of just more like broad thematic essays about particular thoughts or themes. Um, and then Grief Bacon is very much about like emotions and like it's like a newsletter that makes a lot of people cry. And so I think all are very different, but I think you're right that each brings kind of this honesty, a sense of authenticity, kind of this like clear, direct, beautiful writing. Um, and this expressiveness, I think you can be really expressive about anything, right? Like you can be expressive about nail polish if that's what you care about. And so I think there's something about like what I really like about each of these subsects is kind of the lens the kind of author aims at the world more than it is about like specific content. Though I like the content too, obviously. Right. I think that's a good point. One is... uh beauty or almost aesthetics might be a, a fourth component to it that it, that was maybe missing. And, and I think the other is that I'm now thinking about them more, less as all of them have to be at 100%, um, but there's a bit of like, uh, maybe there's 100 points overall and they get distributed across these these different categories. And some people, some writers are very good at emotion and others are very good at clarity, but maybe there's trade-offs between them. Um, you you mentioned you subscribe to 25 Substacks and you're very serious about all of them. And, <laughs> uh, b- based on your other references in your writing, I can tell you read a lot. How do you find time for it? And then also, uh, how do you balance the, the reading and writing? I was always a reader before I was a writer. I feel like even now, reader is kind of my primary identity. So for me in some ways, like it's always been the like actual first thing I kind of spend time on and pay attention to. I think I am, I don't know, I've never measured, but I think I'm like a pretty fast reader and that helps me get through a lot of material. There's a way in which I can kind of maybe be less direct in my attention because it, you know, it doesn't take me like quite as long to get through an article or a book. So I think that has to be part of it. Um, but I also feel like it's really important for me to spend a lot of time reading no matter what, like just because I feel like writing is really dependent on what you're influenced by. And for me, that tends to be like stuff that I consume and most specifically like writing I consume. Um, So especially for the Substack, like often why write about each week sometimes it pulls from like you know personal experiences like a conversation i had with a friend but often at times it also pulls from like things i've been reading that week and so for me there's kind of this need where like if i'm not 
consuming more writing, I think it'd be harder for me to be creative personally. That makes sense. Yeah. You need, you need something to kind of feed and, and seed the ideas that, that you then output. Um, building on this idea of you, you're, you're a prolific reader and writer. Like I think you, you aim to write a thousand words a day, if I'm not mistaken. I think I saw that somewhere. Um, and you have this emphasis on continuous effort. You have this one beautiful line that I, I tweeted out the other day, I think, uh, which was love is just reassertion, choosing something over and over, do it one more time and watch mundane repetition become something transcendent. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this idea lately of, of commitment and focus and putting in the work and doing it a hundred times. Were you, were you always this way or is this something you had to be very intentional about and try to develop within yourself? I think the one of the ways that writing has really freed me is that I now sort of know that I'll have something I do pretty much every day, maybe not every day, but like most days for the rest of my life. Um, I guess I always had reading, which was a consistent part of my life since I was very young. But reading is sort of, reading is consumption, right? Like reading is not creation. And so it always felt a little different for me for me because I wasn't generating anything. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm kind of a generalist. Like I have a bunch of different interests and I've never seen myself as someone who like you know could only do one thing could only specialize in that one thing and that was kind of my calling and so in fact like in my early 20s I definitely had this fear that like you know I was too distractible I would bounce from thing to thing and like I wouldn't find the thing that I wanted to commit to but then it became very clear to me once I started writing more seriously that like writing was the thing that would follow me through the rest of my life. I think that, um, yeah, in retrospect, I would definitely say that I'm happy I was open-minded and searched a lot. I think a lot of people who spend a bunch of time searching kind of, you know, there's all this discourse about like optionality culture and how you just need to pick something straight away and stick to it. But I think it definitely took me time to realize, hey, I want to dedicate a lot of time to writing. And I'm happy I wasn't just like, okay, like I need to decide when I'm like 19, I'm going to go to like law school and then become a lawyer. And because I care about commitment, right. I definitely have to do this no matter what. And so I think it's kind of this balance between, I think practice and repetition are super important. But I also think you should wait until you feel the click. Yeah. I love that. And it, and it all ultimately starts with doing. I think too many people think that they have to find the click in order to, to, to be the indicator that, okay, I should focus on this thing. But if you're not generating anything, then you're not getting internal and external feedback about what it is you should go and focus on. Um, you You said that you are a generalist, but you've gradually gravitated towards writing maybe as your your art form your job um if i remember correctly you you have this other line in one of your essays where you say if you just understand one or two things and learn how to do or communicate them very well like you can make a career out of that uh is your one thing writing or your one and two things kind of like writing and uh psychology i guess or what would you consider your one and two things I would say writing and then probably like human interaction. Um, maybe human interaction. I, I don't know if there's like a better term for that. I sort of don't want to say relationships because like I, I don't necessarily mm. think of relationships as like a focus area or a skill. Like everyone, you know, is in all sorts of relationships all their life. But maybe like I think for me, the two things I really care about are, you know, one, writing and reading. Let's just like, group them into one and like two going out in the world and like talking to people and both are I, I think my interest in psychology kind of just comes from an interest in thinking about people like people are kind of endlessly interesting to me and I definitely come from a place where when I was younger um, you know I am 
Asian Canadian. And I think in the culture, in that culture, kind of very concrete skills are very prized. And I always had a fear, you know, I knew from a pretty young age, like I really like to write, but I definitely had this fear of like, okay, that's not enough because that's like, I don't think writing, I don't know if writing is considered a soft skill, but I guess I saw it as a different skill than like, for instance, like, you know, being able to be a molecular biologist. And so I was like really worried. I was like, oh no, like this isn't enough, if that makes sense. Um, I didn't have confidence that it was enough. And I think I have learned since then that like, you can sort of apply, you know, writing is also a very general skill, but even if you had like a very niche skill, like there are people who make a very good living from crocheting like really beautiful, like plushy toys and like selling them on Instagram and Etsy, you know, like you could like have knitting be your one skill and you could probably have an amazing career out of that. And so I think I generally encourage people to be like, okay, there is a path for whatever skill you're really good at. You should just follow that. Um, I think I was also interested in something you talked about earlier, which, oh yeah, it was this idea of like doing is the most important part. I think it's also really important to like, just realize what you actually like to do, not what you find intellectually interesting. I don't know if that's a problem for everyone, but I think for me, when I was younger and sometimes still now, like I would get really excited about something that was just like, you know, intellectually so interesting to me. Like I was like, it's so cool. And like, I think for everyone, there's lots of things we find really cool. But I think finding something really cool is very different from like, I like to practice this every day. And for a lot of the things you find cool, you're going to start doing them. And you're going to be like, I cannot live like this. Like, this is so boring to do every day. Um, and so, you know, like, just because you think AI is cool, it doesn't necessarily mean that like, you want to become a machine learning researcher, right? Um, and so I think, differentiating between what you find intellectually interesting and what you find intellectually interesting and also like to do is like super crucial. Wow. I, that's fascinating and really resonating with me. And you just articulated something I've been feeling lately, but I haven't been able to put words to is I am, I tried to rationalize uh, this like shiny object syndrome I have where it's like, Oh, crypto a year ago and to your point ai now um i want to be doing that look at all these cool things people are doing i attributed that to me being a generalist and that's part of the reason i started the podcast because i want to have i want to be able to jump from conversation and conversation to conversation topic to topic um but in fact i think it was just a failure of me to distinguish what i actually enjoy doing and can do day in day out versus what i just what piqued my interest at my at the time where I found intellectually uh, interesting. So that a light bulb moment just went off for me there. So I appreciate that. Um, even though, so you said earlier that uh, you might consider your, your two skills to be kind of like writing and then talking about human interaction. You didn't want to pigeonhole yourself by saying relationships, but you do write about relationships a fair amount. Um, I haven't been, I've been in a relationship for 13 years. So I've been very removed from the the dating kind of environment and culture and like haven't dealt really with the dating infrastructure that's out there today. But it seems to me from the outset, um, like things aren't great or aren't optimal. Like there, there is a, uh, there's almost this game that's been developed and this like whole economy that's been developed about it. And it's no longer about meeting a person. It's about like playing the game. I'm curious first, if that, if you would agree with that and second, if so, how and can we should, how we can and should think about trying to improve this or, or mitigate some of the effects of, I guess, technologic technology and, cultural change around the dating environment yeah um dating is definitely a topic i'm very interested in um i always like to preface this by saying that i've been in a relationship for five years so i'm actually not like i have not been out there going on you know 40 dates a year so i'm always like keep in mind that i'm not out here doing field research (laughs) you know maybe 
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to be like, you know, like, I think New York dating is like this. And then someone's like, New York dating is not like that. But, you know, obviously, like everyone else, I have friends who are single and they tell me about their experiences. Also, like, I don't know if this happens for you when you go on TikTok, but TikTok shows me like so much like date talk, like people talking about experiences, relationships, like dates. And I do think that the, you know, mobile dating has changed everything. Like I think Tinder really changed everything. And we've moved into a world where certainly over half now, I'm sure like in like 10, 20 years, it'll be like basically 100% of relationships are facilitated through apps like Tinder, Hinge, Raya. Um, and also most of these dating apps are owned by one company. So like, you know, Match Group basically is responsible <laughs> for all of the couples in America, which is like you know, crazy thought if you think about it. But I do think there is something strange about the current equilibrium where I don't know if this reflects your experience of, you know, what you see on your feed or on social media. But yeah, it seems like the overwhelming experience for both genders is pretty negative for a lot of people. Like I I think there's very few people I've heard say like dating is fun, you know, like I feel like it's either people who pair off pretty soon, you know, like their experience on Hinge or is like very short, like within like a month or two, they meet someone and they're off in a relationship and like, I don't know, they had a pretty good experience, I guess, or it's people who are having a bad time. Like I, I have never heard of any, anyone who's like been going on Hinge dates for two years. I'm just having like a great time. Right. Um, so I think there is maybe like this kind of search problem or something where there seem to be a lot of people who are looking for love, but they seem to not be finding people who want the same thing or the right person for them, even though we have like all this like algorithmic efficiency. Um, and a lot of people like to say, you know, it's because people think there's so much optionality because of this kind of like on online landscape. I don't know if that's true. I I really want to take a closer look actually at the, you know, data about how dating changes from like when you're in your 20s to when you're in your 30s. Because I think especially for women, but also for men in your early 30s, and I've observed this in friends, there is a strong desire to pair off. And people do pair off. Like I think data shows that. And so I wonder how kind of the actual experience of, of like how long people stay on like Hinge or Tinder or whatever other app like changes once you enter your 30s and whether people feel like they're having kind of more efficient experiences when they're really, really searching or if like it's also this thing of like I'm still looking but I can't possibly find anyone. I don't know why. Hmm. We need to commission that study. Moving a little bit further down the kind of relationship rabbit hole uh i mean one of one of the most fundamental concepts within relationships or or at least uh one of the things you hope to drive as a result of a really solid relationship is love um but i think it is common for people to mistake or conflate love and what i'll call attachment or dependence um so i'm curious if that's a a concept or like a dichotomy that you've wrestled with and if so how you would distinguish the two because i think it is it's very normal for people to say i have a feeling of love towards somebody or um yeah a feeling of love towards somebody but really when you think about the things they're saying the kind of symptoms they're talking about it's more indicative of attachment than what i would consider true love yeah i actually as you can tell, I'm in a big TikTok research phase, but um, I saw this amazing TikTok the other day that really hit me. And it was this woman describing about how she was describing how in her previous relationships, all her partners said that they loved her, but she did not in any of those relationships actually feel super loved. And so she was kind of contemplating this question of like, why is it that they have like, you know, they're sending out this envelope, with my name on it with love inside, but never, I never seem to receive it. And the answer she had come to was she'd been reading bell hooks and she 
thought there are kind of like three separate definitions. There's love, which she defined as being committed to kind of someone's continual expanding or to their spiritual growth. There's care, which is kind of, you know, the actual act of like caring for someone. And there's something called cathexis, which she described as like basically your attachment or investment in someone. And so what she felt was like her previous partners had cathexis for her. So they were really invested in her. Like they were really attached, as you might say. So they were like, you're really important to me. Like you really matter. Like I am affected by your presence or lack of it. And so that's what they meant when they said, you know, I love you. But what she was looking for in love was kind of this idea of like, this person's really dedicated to my growth and that's how they show up for me. I feel like that distinction is very interesting, right? Where someone can certainly be really attached to you, feel like they love you. And, you know, I would still call that love. I, I, I don't know how, I haven't yet decided how I want to think about these definitions or apply them to my own life. But I think there's definitely something there about like, most of us also want a love that include like other person's commitment to our growth and you can be you can really be attached to someone and not want them to grow you can in fact say you know i just want you sort of in a place where i'm possessive and you always need me right and because of that like in an unhealthy relationship they do not want you to grow and so i think thinking about that way is like very interesting the idea of being love as being a commitment to their i think you said continual expansion um or something along those lines that that really hits home i i like that a lot that's a very succinct description of this um we mentioned ai earlier and you were we both work in tech uh and i think we've going back to i mean i'm sure there's a lot of uh precursors in in culture and media that i'm unaware of but i i go back to the movie her as kind of one of the more recent starting places uh or like dystopian kind of uh, forecasting of, of what the future could be like with AI. How do you see AI impacting relationships, love, intimacy? And do you think it'll be uh, net net for the worse? Mm, yeah, I was literally talking about this with a friend two nights ago. Uh, it's been it's been really on my mind. I actually I'm going to say this, you know, on the podcast. But uh, I'm trying to get a grant to research this because it's such a, it's like the only thing I can think about right now. So, you know. Oh, wow. If there's any grant programs, let me know. But um, I've been really just thinking about, I'm very interested in kind of human AI intimacy. Um, I'm just going to go on a rant about this now so you can stop me if you want. No, no, no. Please take all the time you want. Essentially, I think we all know that people are kind of more atomized, alienated, and like, have fewer friends than they have at previous points of history. Like most people say they have, I think like less than, much less than three close friends, maybe like only one close friend or less. Um, you know, teenagers are reporting higher rates of anxiety and depression um, and more suicide attempts. And they also, you know, studies show they hang out with friends less. And so I think there's clearly this like lack of intimacy in our culture. Also, you know, Gen Z is waiting later to have sex, later to get married, um, and people are having fewer children. And I think all this kind of reflects, I don't know if it's purely because of technology, but I think the popularity of the smartphone clearly is related to this in some way. And so I think it's like really, really interesting that, you know, over the past 15 years, probably longer, but really in the last 15 years, I think we've seen more people go to this place of like, I don't necessarily feel like I can compete. Like I can't really participate in the dating pool or it's it's so hard for me to like, I can't go on Tinder and get a lot of matches and like, you know, just like spending months and months swiping is like so depressing that I don't want to do it. And then all of a sudden we had these LLMs and, you know, I'm sure you've like played with like Bing and Claude and uh, GPT-4, but for the first time, you can have like a very intelligent conversation. Maybe it doesn't sound like completely human yet, but probably will very soon. And I think it's very clear to me that a lot of people will certainly have AI, BFs, GFs. The question is like, how will that alter like our behavior? And I think in some ways, her is kind of almost a utopian take because 
despite falling in love with the AI, um, the relationship with the AI in that movie is positive in the sense that she helps him kind of resolve some of his attachment issues and like become a person mm. in the world. And I think for me, like that would be the best case scenario if like, I think it'd be great if every single person had like an AI friend, a best friend who they talk to constantly, but the AI was also like really encouraging and was like, you know, for example, I've been thinking about teenagers, especially like if you had a virtual best friend, but the best friend was also like, you need to go hang out with like Miranda and Sam this week. And like, you need to be exercising and you should be out in nature. And you like really trusted them and believed they had your best interest at heart. Like, I think that's so amazing because you kind of have the elimination of loneliness, but at the same time, like you are still participating maybe even more so than before in the world. I think obviously the ne negative scenario is if all you do is talk to the AI. Um, and I know some people might not see that as a negative scenario, but for me, like it's really scary to imagine a world where people don't interact with people because human-human relationships are just too much friction and we just talk to LLMs instead. Uh, to me, that's dystopic. So I think we're going to learn a lot of things over the next like five, 10 years about how people actually do want to interact with AI and whether it makes them totally retreat from society. I, I like the utopian spin you took there. Uh, I, I would consider myself a techno optimist, but am a little more pessimistic in this area for the exact, for the the last reason you mentioned, which is I think in regards to relationships and intimacy and and like sexual desire, the the bar for uh, for achieving or gaining those things has been substantially lowered, starting with uh, pornography. Um, and and so if you are able to get those things without um, putting a lot of effort into it and without risking the downside of failure and embarrassment. And you can get that with 10% of the effort and it's 90% as good or 80% as good, or at least that's what they think. But you have to put 90% of the effort in in order to get the real thing. Um, I worry that people, we, we have a tendency to be lazy and just go after kind of what's already available to us. And so I, I worry that'll have this uh, not so, ver the, this vicious cycle, this vicious feedback loop of pushing people further and further indoors into their own space um i i i think the best way to describe this is i tweeted out the other day like i think we've we've never been less alone but more lonely um mm -hmm. like we're, we're constantly surrounded by people i i was able we've never met in person you're a thousand miles away but i was able to get you on on this call um and yet people as you alluded to are reporting that they're more lonely and depressed than they've ever been and i just worry that it'll exacerbate that yeah and i think there's the thing that makes me nervous is like you know in the case of pornography there's a way in which like consuming too much pornography especially for young men can have like affect your ability to have like a normal or healthy sex life like porn addiction is very real also like it changes kind of social and cultural expectations around like what normal sex is like Right. And, you you know, you can see that kind of play out where like, what if someone who's only interacted with AI girls in their formative years, like has a lot of trouble interacting with like real people? Because like, obviously, you know, it's going to be different. It's different having an experience that's catered completely towards you. That's like, you know, an AI will always respond instantly. They'll always be positive towards you. Um, you right. don't really have to ever fight with them. And going from that to like, you know, the friction and difficulty of a relationship with a real person, like I wonder if people will struggle with that. I'm I'm certain some people will. Yeah. I, I think we could do a whole episode on this topic alone. Um and if anyone from two you you mentioned you'd love to get a grant from this, two people or kind of organizations came to mind that we should reach out to. One is O'Shaughnessy Ventures. They have like a hundred thousand dollar grant uh pool going right now and then also tyler cowan's emergent uh venture so i think we should absolutely get somebody to to fund that um zooming out for a second and i know we're, we're butting up against time here so i'll just ask two kind of final questions um one is uh 
there, there was this phrase in one of your pieces that stuck out to me, which was, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, it was something like, what do you want to be brought out of you? Uh, th this phrase of like bringing something out of you, bringing something forth really stuck with me. So I'm curious to turn that around on you. What do you want to be brought out of you through your work and in life in general? And I know it's a very vague question, but I'm sure there's some kind of meta themes here or consistent threads. Yeah. I think that the things I really care about and want to embody more are like one, a sensitivity to beauty, um, two, precise and rigorous thought, and three, an increased ability to kind of accurately take things from my internal world and express them internally, which, you know, I think is the pursuit of many writers where there are many people with very rich internal worlds, but I think like the ability to write is in some ways about the ability to kind of externalize that. Um, and so I hope that through continuously writing, I can be better and better at like turning what I'm feeling inside into something that's like legible to other people. Awesome. Um, well, I always ask the, the same final question in closing, uh, which is what's one question you'd leave me or listeners with whether to think about or to act on? Yeah, I think maybe something I have personally been thinking a lot about is this idea of like balancing wanting to be really good at what you do with like choosing something where like we talked about earlier you would still do it if you sort of knew that there was no way it would be successful um and i think for me obviously i hope to become a better and better writer and i hope that my writing you know find success in the world like everyone wants that but at the same time i do really feel that if it didn't like i would still write like it has like a personal value to me and to my life like outside of how it's received and so I think maybe going back to the like, what do you actually like to do? I think a really good way to identify that is just to ask yourself, like, what is something that is so fun for you, like so rewarding that like, even if you knew you would only be like terribly mediocre at it for the rest of your life, you would still be like, I just love this and I will go be back to this in private. And I think that if you know what that is and you're not horribly untalented at it, then it's something that's probably like a really good job or calling for you such great advice that that reminds me of the uh the naval quote do what feels like play to you and work to others um yeah. i've come back to that idea a lot a lot recently and i think that this podcast could be that but still experimenting and figuring it out so we'll see um well ava thank you so much for your time this was a ton of fun i have like 15 other questions that i'll save for uh hopefully another time um but i appreciate you and uh, i'll include links to your work and your your twitter in the show notes thank you so much it's really nice talking to you and yeah i'm really glad you reached out